Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 222, The Good Helmsman. Last time, we watched on as Bohemond made one last bid for a piece of Byzantium and failed. Alexius backed him into a corner until the Normans surrendered. Despite this conclusive victory, the agreement reached between the two men soon became a dead letter. Bohemond never returned to Antioch. He stayed in Apulia and did nothing to help enforce the handover of the city as the treaty stipulated. After it became clear that the Norman had retired from public life, Alexius sent word to Tancred, Bohemond's nephew, to inform him of the deal that had been struck. Tancred refused to accept the treaty and with Byzantine soldiers away in the Balkans, he made rapid progress in subduing both Cilicia and Laodicea, the Roman strongholds either side of Antioch. Despite Anna's presentation of Bohemond's defeat as a triumph for her father, Alexius's actions make it clear that he did not consider anything less than Antioch's recovery as a real victory. In response to Tancred's stonewalling, the emperor turned to diplomacy and explored every channel possible to find a way to wrest Antioch from Norman hands. Between 1108, when Bohemond surrendered, and 1113, when plans for Antioch had to be abandoned, Alexius worked hard to form a coalition of support that would allow him to send troops to the Orontes. The emperor had to tread carefully, though. He knew that his actions were likely to be misinterpreted by the Latins. So far, he'd been blamed for the People's Crusade being slaughtered, the First Crusaders running out of food, for abandoning the Siege of Antioch, and for the Crusade of 1101 being massacred. This litany of sins had led men to eagerly stand behind Bohemond as he attempted to capture Dyrrhachium. Alexius knew that if he tried to retake Antioch without the backing of the Latin world, not only would the mission fail, but it would provoke another assault on Byzantium. So during the course of that five-year period, 
Alexius tried to get the Pope, the Pisans, and the other Crusader states on board for some kind of operation against Antioch. The Pisans, as you know, had sent a fleet to the Levant a few years earlier, one that had attacked Byzantine ports en route. The Pisan Archbishop, Damebert, had then been installed as the Patriarch of Jerusalem. Since then, Damebert had fallen out with the King of Jerusalem, Baldwin, and had been exiled from the city. The Pisans were anxious about losing their access to the markets of the eastern Mediterranean, and so responded favourably to Alexius's overtures. After another brief naval confrontation, the two sides signed a treaty similar to the one Alexius had granted the Venetians decades before. The agreement made the Pisans subordinate allies of the Byzantines, but in exchange they were granted access to Roman ports at a reduced rate of tax. The Pisans would pay only 4% in customs duties, as opposed to the 10% paid by everyone else, except the Venetians, who paid none. The Pisans would also be given some property in Constantinople. It was another concession with important consequences for the future of the empire, but at the time, Alexius considered this a crucial agreement to make. It made it very unlikely that any assault on Byzantium would again come from the West, now that Venice and Pisa had such vested interests in the empire's territory. And it meant that should an agreement be reached for an assault on Antioch, Alexius could be sure of having enough ships to both transport his troops and cover his back. He had less luck elsewhere. After Pope Pascal had given Bohemond his backing, Alexius tried to engineer a detente with the papacy to prevent crusading from being used against Byzantium again. Churchmen from east and west met in a council to discuss the possibility of reuniting the churches in some fashion. As you can imagine, this did not succeed, particularly when the Latins made it clear that any such endeavour must place the Bishop of Rome at the head of the entire church. Alexius was willing to consider anything, though. When trouble flared up again between the pontiff and the German emperor, Komnenos suggested that perhaps Byzantine troops could protect the Eternal City. Again, this came to nothing, and quite how the empire would have been able to spare enough men, I don't know. In the East, the emperor found his entreaties similarly ignored. Though Raymond of Toulouse had died in 1105, his forces had eventually captured Tripoli and created a new Christian kingdom in Lebanon. Alexius tried to get Raymond's successors and King Baldwin to support a campaign against Tancred. The Latins gave a half-hearted response. If the emperor was able to line their pockets with huge amounts of gold, it seemed like they might aid the effort. But as soon as the Muslims of the interior began to cause trouble, the Franks of Outrima would put aside their differences and unite together. Tancred himself died in 1112, and with every passing year, the alliances between Alexius and those who'd served in the First Crusade grew weaker, while the Latins who remained 
understandably preferred to work together rather than trust the quote-unquote Greeks. Some of that trouble from the Muslim interior, by the way, may have been encouraged by Alexius. According to Muslim sources, a Byzantine embassy came to Baghdad during this period and encouraged the Sultan to attack the Franks. If true, this was just the kind of double-dealing the Latins accused the Byzantines of partaking in. But I'm sure Alexius would argue that, hey, you're the ones who broke your oaths. Besides, he was far from the only supplicant in Baghdad begging for an army to attack the Franks. He was just hoping to encourage instability, the kind that might force the Latins to renew their alliance with Byzantium. Despite leaving no stone unturned, Alexius could not forge a fulsome coalition against Antioch, and soon he had to turn his attention back to Anatolia, and leave Syria for another day. In 1107, Kilij Arslan was killed in battle, leaving the Sultanate of Rum in a confused state. Arslan left four sons behind, and a string of independent warlords who controlled key cities like Melitene, which had fallen to the Turks in 1105. Since the fall of Nicaea back in 1097, a truce had held between Arslan and Alexius. The Romans had even hired troops from the Sultan to help fight Bohemond. But now all bets were off and the nomads began to raid western Anatolia again, pushing into Byzantine territory to plunder. Roman defences were centred on Nicaea in the north and Smyrna in the south, and they also controlled a few fortresses on the plateau from which they monitored the movement of the Turks. In 1110, a major raid towards Smyrna was pushed back with difficulty, another followed in 1112. In 1113, a major Turkic army raided the region around Nicaea and sacked various towns, including Kizikus. The governor of Nicaea led his forces against them, but was captured during the fighting. This prompted Alexius to cross over in person and try to catch the Turks as they headed home, laden with slaves and booty. He did, and rescued the governor and many other prisoners, but with a heavy heart the emperor realised that he would have to abandon plans for Antioch in order to pacify Anatolia. By 1116, Komnenos had gathered his full army near Nicomedia, and was planning a punitive raid on the sultan's capital of Iconium. But to underline the problems he was facing, the nomads beat him to the punch. Several groups of Turks raided Byzantine territory, even as Alexius was putting new recruits through their drills. The emperor decided to push on with his campaign anyway, but this meant there were now Turks to the rear of his army as well as in front of him. Never a good scenario. Initially, the march went smoothly as the Romans made their way down the now familiar route from Nicaea to Dorylaeum and then south to the region around Antioch in Pisidia. On the way, they captured various fortresses and freed Byzantine prisoners, but just as the Crusaders had repeatedly found, the next stretch of plateau 
was barren and waterless, and Turkic troops were lying in wait. Leadership of the Sultanate had now been grasped by Kilij Arslan's eldest son, who is known in the sources as Malik Shah, a ceremonial name, and uh, we shouldn't confuse him with the former Sultan of Baghdad of the same name. Malik Shah had his army gathered and was waiting for the Romans along this road, and so eventually Alexius decided to turn back. The emperor really had changed over the years. Gone was the young man who'd raced into rash defeats to the Normans and Pechenegs. Now, the 59-year-old veteran knew better than to risk all that he'd gained. Not that retreat under these circumstances was easy. The emperor had decided that in order to gain something from the campaign, he would round up some of the local Roman population and take them with him, resettling them in other parts of the empire. His retreat, therefore, involved resurrecting some of Nicephorus Phocas's tactics and marching in a square formation with the civilians at the centre. This complicated manoeuvre was further imperiled by the nomads who were now returning from their raids to the west. The Byzantines found their scouts and foragers harassed from every direction, and it took a lot of effort to maintain morale and avoid the sense that the army was staggering into a trap. Malik Shah advanced and attacked the Romans as they retreated, but could not break through their solid lines of defence. Anna reports this as if it was a great victory, but it sounds more like a running skirmish. Soon afterwards, messengers appeared from the Sultan asking for a renewal of the peace that had existed under his father. Once more, this would turn out to be a fleeting victory for Alexius. A ceremony was held where the two rulers shook hands and rode on horseback together, and presumably they agreed to stick to their spheres of influence from now on, the Byzantines in the west of Anatolia and the Turks in the centre and the east. But as with the treaty that Bohemond signed, this one wouldn't last either. On his way home, Malik Shah was captured and blinded by his enemies, and the battle for control of the Sultanate resumed. A frustrated Alexius returned slowly to Constantinople. There are just a couple of things to mention before we say farewell to Alexius. We haven't talked much at all about Trebizond during this period. The port city in the northeast corner of Anatolia was shielded so thoroughly by the Pontic Mountains that it was able to maintain its independence throughout Alexius's reign. This involved a complicated balancing act. Formerly, the city remained part of the empire, and its governors were paid by Alexius. But at the same time, the city had to remain friendly with the Danishmens who dominated the land on the other side of the hills. This led to various scraps with both sides. Uh, various governors of Trebizond were imprisoned by both the Turks and the Byzantines, as each side tried to gain ascendancy over the territory. Ultimately, Alexius had to accept a certain amount of self-rule for Trebizond in exchange for Byzantine shipping being welcomed there. The locals didn't want to submit to the Turks, but there was always a temptation to flout imperial authority when the emperors lacked the means to enforce their will. 
Alexius also put in place various ecclesiastical reforms during his administration. This included forcing bishops who'd been squatting in the capital to return to their sees in Anatolia to do their job, and pushing the clergy of Constantinople to actually go out into the streets and do some pastoral work. This was in response to the various heretical holy men who'd gathered followings amongst the urban population. The Komnenoi continued to broadcast the message that they were the restorers of orthodoxy and morality, and so Alexius demanded that the clergy back up his words with actions. Finally, reports reach us that ambassadors were in Syria in 1118, discussing the possibility of a marriage alliance between Alexius's grandson and a princess of Antioch. With every other avenue exhausted, it seems the emperor turned to the long-term prospect of Byzantium simply inheriting its way back to the Orontes. That same year, though, the emperor's time was finally up. The gout, asthma, and other ailments of advancing age were making his life increasingly uncomfortable. On the 15th of August, 1118, after a long struggle, the emperor died surrounded by his family. He was about 61 years old and had ruled the Roman Empire for 37 years. Alexius Komnenos was a very good emperor. Only Leo III in 717 inherited a worse situation than the one that faced Alexius when he came to power. And just by surviving as long as he did, he brought stability at a time of tremendous crisis. The decision to delegate authority to his brother and mother was a huge asset to Romania. We've seen over the millennia that the best periods of Roman government usually involved imperial partnerships. Augustus and Agrippa, Justinian and Belisarius, Romanos Lecapinos and John Corcuas. By allowing his family to run the administration, Alexius gave himself time to master the army and pacify the Balkans. He was clearly not a natural tactician and had to learn costly lessons early on. But by the end of his reign, he was able to campaign in Anatolia, something emperors had been unable to do when he took the throne. By then, he'd also restored the empire's finances, reformed the court and the church, and was instrumental in creating the First Crusade, which, for all its flaws, brought the richest and most populous parts of Anatolia back into the empire. I don't think it's fair to judge Alexius by the events of 1204 AD. The deals with Venice and the Crusaders would ultimately prove to be deadly for Byzantium, but over a century elapsed before that came to pass. Many others must line up to take some blame ahead of Alexius. Still, it does feel like his failure to capture Antioch is a significant part of his legacy. The moment I wonder about is the spring of 1098, when Tatikios returned to Alexius's side to report on the lack of progress outside Antioch's walls, could the emperor have done more? 
Clearly he was sending supplies from Cyprus, something the Latins later ignored. But could he have spared a few more ships? Could he have sent a delegation from the capital? A few more soldiers? A bishop? Some kind of ambassador who would have represented the empire in the crusaders' hour of need? Given how vital Antioch was to his plans, it seems an odd omission. Modern historians like Michael Angold and Warren Treadgold criticise Alexius for not campaigning more vigorously against the Turks in Anatolia, which I find an odd criticism. Early in his reign, Komnenos was busy trying to establish a safe backyard in the Balkans. Later in his reign, he was pressing his claims to Antioch, which, had he captured it, would have made tackling the Turks far easier. I am intrigued, though, by Jonathan Shepard's comment that Alexius was a grand recruiting sergeant, a man who got Turks and Latins to fight for him, but did little to restore the native Roman army. I suspect this is linked to staying in power. Raising Romans to fight for you comes with the risk of them challenging you for the throne. It's interesting to wonder, though, whether in the end... Alexius relied on non-Romans a little too much. The empire's defences increasingly depended on alliances with Western powers and a steady stream of foreign mercenaries. In broad strokes, though, I think Alexius was a very successful leader. He restored peace and prosperity to an empire on the brink of collapse, and he provided it with a stable, legitimate dynasty before passing power on to his son. I also think we should praise the emperor's humility. We discussed this a bit when the First Crusade passed through Constantinople. Contrary to all imperial protocols, the emperor got up off his throne and personally welcomed the leading Latins. He shook hands, he handed out gifts, and he chatted with them. In the famous image of the emperors on their hydraulic throne, surrounded by golden trees, birds and lions, the imperial person is silent. He says nothing to the foreign ambassadors who cower before this theatrical display. You may remember our Italian correspondent Liet Prand of Cremona describing the very brief moments during his long stays in the capital when an emperor deigned to speak to him. Alexius, by contrast, sent his own son as a hostage to indicate how important he considered the crusaders' presence. In an extraordinary passage of the Alexiad, Anna describes Latin visitors talking the emperor's ear off day and night, keeping him from sleeping or doing any other work. You can hear the anger in her words as she describes the indignity of it all, and she praises her father for enduring the insult and the tedium for the sake of the empire. Exaggeration or not, Alexius did not allow imperial dignity to stand in the way of finding an army that could cow the nomads and bring the empire back to something approaching its former glory. And yet, Alexius was well aware that imperial dignity was vital that respect for the Roman emperor and what he might do to you was key in keeping all those foreign nations at bay. 
the emperor expresses these sentiments in a short, poetic piece of writing known to us as the Muses. Alexius probably didn't write it, but we can assume that it expresses the feelings of his inner circle. The document is full of advice for his son, John, on how to run the empire. In amongst advice you'd expect about being virtuous and pious, he says the following about the Crusades. Will you not ponder and keep in mind the recent commotion from the West, lest there arise a time of need which will chasten and humble the lofty dignity of new Rome and the majesty of its throne? So, my child, you must take care to lay up treasure which will clamp the jaws of the barbarians who breathe enmity against us. Those words express a keen Byzantine awareness of the fickle nature of the relationship between East and West. Alexius's humility could only extend so far. At some point, the Westerners might try to humiliate the Romans, and preparations must be made to prevent this. Komnenos's solution is to keep the gold flowing into Constantinople, only with sufficient reserves will John be able to satisfy the greed of the Latins and keep them from trying to take a bite out of Byzantium itself. This wariness of the Franks suggests that Alexius was well aware of the problems he'd helped create. The failure to take Antioch seems to have really stung him. Anna confirms that her father's mood was sombre in his final days. She says he advised her not to write history and stick to lighter subjects. Apparently, he commented that rather than keeping a record of his achievements, it would be better to grieve for him and deplore his miseries. In the end, though, I, like Anna, cannot help saluting an emperor whose successes far outweighed his failures. Amongst her many flattering analogies for her father, I think the best is the good helmsman, who, as she says, guided his craft safely through the constant battering of the waves. Next time, we return to where this all started. Way back in episode 197, I talked to Professor Leonora Neville about Anna Komnini. At the end of that conversation, we talked about the succession from Alexius to John and the story that has persisted ever since that Anna tried to steal the throne for herself, or at least for her husband, Nicephorus Vurianios. I will play that part of the interview in our next episode, and I'm sure I will interject as usual. We will try to clear up some misconceptions, and I'll talk a little about the sources who will guide us through the next century of Byzantine history. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 